Welcome to Still Scared Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, and today we're talking about Mercedes Ice and Casper in the Glitter by Philip Ridley. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! Good evening, Adam. Yo, 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 yippee, yo, yippee, yo. <laughs> um, welcome to Ridley Week, um, which um, I'm very excited about. Um, this was one on my list right from the beginning of what we, what to do for this podcast. And, and I, I was excited but slightly apprehensive because Ridley, <laughs> Ridley is a weird fish. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> um, both in the... Uh, in the children's book game and in his uh, in your adult face, plays. Br- in your face British theatre genre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so which is he's more he's more known for and his screenplays. Um, but yeah. for a period in the nineties, um, he was definitely pretty well known for his sort of odd odd children's books um yeah certainly if you look at the cover quotes it says things like ridley has to be dull's successor and so forth mm-hmm. so clearly for a time he was regarded as a big name in kids fiction yeah no um i um in primary school we studied um meteorite spoon and um i think yeah there was just a few years where he was they were everywhere and now I think they're actually possibly out of print. <laughs> they're quite hard to find. Like, I tend to snap them up when I find mm. them in second-hand bookstores. Yeah, um, me too. But, yeah, they're not... You don't come across them that often. Um, as for me, I think Kringle Cracks was read to us in primary school, which is the one about the alligator mm-hmm. in the sewers. I have mm. vague memories of that one, but um, I really came to him through you know being a a theatre student and uh, reading Pitchfork Mm. Disney Mm -hmm. which I think one of the first things we did together when we became (laughs) friends was read Pitchfork Disney yeah yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's good (laughs) Uh, nerdy yeah Uh, nerdy students but, that we were well york's the nerdiest of universities isn't it, it, it is like you know there aren't many Absolutely. universities where the pantomime society is the biggest society on campus. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i remember like going to leeds and just looking at their university and like oh this is where the cool people are. <laughs> yeah totally, See. totally. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah um so <laughs> So we're doing Mercedes Ice and Casper and the Glitter, um, neither of which are straightforwardly horror. 
at all. But, I mean, Ridley's books are hard to categorise in general. Um, and they're sort of uh, kind of fairy tales. Yeah, ur- urban fairy tales is a term I've seen crop up, which yeah, makes sense. that's what it says. Um, the, the, um, the blurb for Mercedes Ice is uh, an urban fairy story for modern children, which... Yeah, it's um is a decent enough um description of his children's books in general. Um And the and the interesting thing is, right, that there isn't that much difference between the children's books and the plays for adults. I mean there, there's obviously yeah. far more taboo material like uh-huh. general death and destruction in the plays for adults. But in terms of the banter, like the kind of patter, the char- the way the characters talk and the, the general poise of the characters, the way people carry themselves, mm-hmm. right? And the kind of, you know, young whippersnappers in Bobby Dazzlers with quiffs, um, yeah, treating yeah. themselves and uh, talking in kind of East End patter, like that's very common in both. Yeah, and the the um, the fantastical names that they tend to have, um, they're all these slightly larger than life characters. Um, yeah, it is really interesting because they're kind of the children's books and adult plays are definitely on a spectrum. Yeah, um, yeah, like they all feel like they belong in the same universe. Yeah, um, just with uh, different ways of uh, different gradations, I guess. <laughs> yeah, different, different gradations of horribleness. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, and the. Uh, they're definitely, yeah, all about cities. Um, and because Ridley um, lived for nearly all his life in um, in the East End of London. Um, and He's not dead, is he? No, no, he's just he's just moved um, further <laughs> out. Yeah, no, don't worry. Not moved, <laughs> moved to another plane of existence. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'll no, wait for a sec. he's he's moved to Deptford or oh. something. But um, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> uh, I read an interview and he said he's moved for the first time in his life, just sort of further east. But, and yeah. you, you of course are. I mean, do you consider yourself an East Ender at heart? Uh, no, I don't think I count at all. Um, <laughs> but, 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 Stoke Newington doesn't count. No, well, but, but, um, but you, you walk with the you sometimes walk with the East End swagger. So <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm dubious. But uh... <laughs> but, but 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 you you are a London kid. Yes. Yeah. Broadly speaking, not like born and raised, but did lived there for a large part of my life so because I, I definitely think as so I, I do like Ridley quite a lot but I suspect that you're in the way that I can relate to Postman Pat and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, I imagine that the, the world of Ridley's books probably makes more intuitive sense to you in a sense they're very much city books yes yes um particularly the well, all of them, but the two we're discussing here there are fairy tales about cities. Um, should we get into Mercedes Ice? Yeah, so Mercedes um, Ice is the first. Yeah, and it's one of his earliest... Um, yeah, one of his earliest children's books. Um, and basically, 
the the main character it's it's like the title being Mercedes Ice who is a character in the book the sort of really the main character is the kind of the tower block um mm. shadow point um as the book sort of follows the building um from um from when it starts to be built through to its completion and then its decline and then its destruction at the end of the story um yeah so <laughs> i didn't that's a nice sorry, that's, it <laughs> That's my semi-clever point that I I came up with while thinking about this. Um, the, um, so Rosie Glow, who's later known as Mrs. Ice, is um, the character whose life is kind of inextricably bound up with Shadow Point. Um, so she's born on the same day construction starts, and she admires it as it's being built and dreams of one day living on its top floor. Um, she marries a boy, Timothy Ice, who also loves a new building, and they get their flat right at the top. Um, but before long, Shadow Point begins to degrade. I've got a quote. It says, um, Before long, the smooth grey concrete became buckled and discoloured. The big windows were impossible to clean, so they became thick with dust and let no light in. The silver gleam of the television aerials soon became a rusty forest on the roof of the building, like a gigantic bird's nest. Shadow Point became dark. Hundreds of pigeons and sparrows made their homes in the maze of television aerials. Before long, thousands of birds were squawking and screaming around Shadow Point. The bird droppings stuck to the side of the building and turned green and hard. Soon Shadow Point began to change shape. It started to resemble a mountain, rising bleak and menacing above the rooftops. Um, so Rosie and Timothy also start to become the worse for wear as well. Um, the, the relationship struggling as all Timothy can talk about is cars and Rosie becomes housebound. Timothy meets his end after being chased up 30 floors of the building by a ferocious rat. Which um, I, I think is the point of the book. I would have bailed out as a kid. Yeah, no, I actually, um, I remember, I remember reading, specifically reading this book and getting quite freaked out at that point and, um, my mum sort of looking at being like, what is this? What, what, what are you reading? Like, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and so Rosie's pregnant with, um, with a child Mercedes. Um, and this is where the title character comes in. Uh, Mercedes eyes named after the car. And he's almost he, dreamed about. Yeah. He's almost like this was self-appointed main character. Yeah, yeah, there's no reason why he is, particularly. But you feel like Mercedes Ice himself would regard himself as the main character. Yeah, yeah, essentially. He's not um, not very sympathetic, like a domineering kid. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rosie's only friend is Hilda Sparkle, who also has no husband and has a daughter called Hickory. Um, Mercedes and Hickory grow up exploring the flats and sort of knowing every corner of it. Um, Hickory's territory is the basement and um, Mercedes is the wreath, although he wants control over everything and Hickory as well. Um, and sort of in the end, a series of events lead up to Rosie filling the building with gas and lighting a match and all of Shadow Point collapsing in a huge explosion. Um, the only two survivors are... Mercedes and Hickory and Hickory claims the crown of the Cobweb Kingdom and makes Mercedes her slave 
<laughs> um, it is, yeah. It's really interesting, the ending, because it's like you know that everyone else has died. It doesn't explicitly state it, but you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, it, it, yeah, it's, it, it's very... It's really... It's hard to explain, but sometimes it's like a shadow point feels like a real building, and then sometimes it feels like this kind of weird magical extension of the people's lives. Yeah, so the building is kind of... does sort of feel semi-real. It's kind of... No one apart from the named characters ever see anyone else in Shadow Point. Yeah. Um, so it has this sort of eerie... It has this kind of eerie urban alienation that comes up a lot in Ridley's stories. Um, I don't know how... Have you... I don't know if you've read any, but any others but um, um, I think I've got Dakota of the is it Dakota of the Salt Flats or something like that uh, the White Flats the White Flats yeah I own that one uh, okay and uh, say Kringle um, Cracks I remember mm. vaguely um, but I guess it's true certainly in the plays as well right yeah that in Pitchfork Disney obviously the brother and sister uh, are up isolated in their flat and they talk mm. as though it's the end of the world you never quite know if it is actually post-apocalyptic, or if it's just yeah. that they never leave. Yeah. There's lots of people living in crumbling buildings or in houses that are standing alone when all the rest around them has been demolished. Um, or, like, new houses that have just been built, but hardly anyone's moved into them yet. So there's lots of these sort of sort of weird sort of empty urban spaces um yeah and I was sort of trying to work out sort of why <laughs> the, the just the tone of this book is where it is very odd yeah like it's it's very detached and I think that's because it's it's following the building the lifespan of the building rather than any particular character so much yeah i think that's part of it and that the characters it feels like the lives have been overshadowed by the building or almost predestined by the building yeah that they don't seem to have autonomous lives outside of the building almost yeah yeah i mean there's the the scope of the story is these flats that the school playground and a couple of other houses nearby but that's the extent of the world yeah um which is how the world often feels when you're a kid um because yeah. you know your movements and life are so circumscribed as a child that i think mm. yeah that's you know certainly like growing up in a village you know it's very different to an urban experience but you know for me the village was my world and going even into town, you know, Ipswich town is not a big town, but it, it felt like a completely other world to me. Mm. Um, like, you know, uh, mostly I was at school or at my house. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it has, um, as we've alluded to, it has a quite extravagant death tally um, <laughs> for a children's book. <laughs> and quite a matter-of-fact way of dealing with death. Yes. Um, 
So the first death we get is... Um, um, did you, did, did you actually keep a tally? I did actually keep a tally, yes. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I know you well enough that when you said death, <laughs> Ren's kept a tally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, Skip, uh, the construction worker that Rosie befriends as a little girl when he's work, he's building one of the builders on Shadow Point and she talks to him about about how... How, how much she loves the building and um one day he she sees a stretcher going past with his um his golden helmet on top and um that's the end of skip um both rosie and timothy's fathers um well they don't just uh die off screen so so to speak um and they they meet in the graveyard and say, "Oh yes, my father's dead. My father's dead too." Yeah. Um, and then both their mothers die. By the time they're um, they're living in Shadow Point together, one of them's knocked down by a bus. Yes, um, and the other one chokes on a whelk or a cockle, <laughs> um, because uh, Timothy works on the um, seafood store in the market. Um, and then, um, as we've mentioned, Timothy himself um, is dispatched in quite a horrifying way. Um, and then at the end, Rosie and everyone in the building, <laughs> apart from Hickory, and if there is indeed anyone else in the building, yeah. <laughs> Hickory, apart from Hickory and Miss Amy's. Uh, but I think um, also, like, there's this odd blunted emotional effect amongst some of Ridley's characters. So yeah. the kids don't seem particularly concerned that their parents have just been killed at the end of the book. No, no. Like, they just sort of get on with it and like, yeah, I'm the queen of the building now and you're my slave. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, there's something yeah, quite mercenary um... about a lot of Ridley characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're all quite you know they're kind of scrappy survivors and often they're quite hard edged like I think mm. they'll sometimes be like saying when you go on to Casper and the Glitter Casper himself is a sensitive soul yeah. and then is sort of thrust into a world with kind of scrappy survivors yeah um, and I think as his books go on there's more um, there's more emotion okay. <laughs> to them. Um, in fact, like the um, the most recent one I've read, um, Zips Apollo, is kind of overflowing with emotion, really. Oh, um, that's interesting. Um, that's, but, in- that's interesting because I think the plays have gotten colder. Hmm. I, 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 I think um, the earliest plays like Pitchfork Disney are very openly emotional and mm. I, I, I found how oh, was there's one he wrote recently about a, a couple who are trying to climb up the property ladder and successively oh, yeah. murder lots of people to get nicer and nicer houses and that one's really okay. kind of nasty and cold yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, they followed kind of counter emotional trajectories, I think. Yeah. Um, 
Um, yeah, I mean, Zips Apollo, I really like it, but it's kind of bordering on sentimental. <laughs> <gasps> oh, no! <laughs> oh, no! Emotion! Genuine emotion! Yeah. <laughs> no, but, yeah. It's really, You're like, yeah, oh, I just so. want the horribleness. <laughs> I know, I really like it. Um, okay. And it has a trans character as well. Like, explicitly trans character, which... Oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah. I think, I mean, Ridley is obviously gay. Um, mm. And I think there is generally, maybe not so much in Mercedes Ice, Casper and the Glitter, to me, feels like a very queer book. Okay, now I've been criticised by Alex for that we keep saying things are queer and not they're not explaining why they're queer. <laughs> I mean, do, well, first, do you agree with me that Casper and the Glitter? Um, yeah, I think it has... Um, well, I think it's sort of similar to the um, to the Oz books, that it has this sort of... Um, that has this kind of um, gaggle of outsiders feel. Um and like found family, which is, I think, inherently quite a queer concept. I think also, and I, I want to sort of express this without it becoming kind of a weird thing, but I feel like there's a lot of kind of play with femme and butch characters in Ridley's slough in general. Mm -hmm. I guess there's just a lot of kind of gender performativity, right? Mm -hmm. that, yeah. that, that, that characters become very concerned with you know, say their sparkling suit or their, their, their yeah. wonderful quiff or uh -huh. their bouffant hairstyle and that yes. this somehow is part of how they interact with the world, right? It, you know, it becomes very central to their identity in quite a performative way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. like Nicolas Cage with his uh, snakeskin suit in Wild at Heart, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, there's definitely lots of um, lots of uh, characters who whose style is very central to how they face the world. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Um, so, do you want um, to describe the basic plot of Casper and the Glitter? Yeah, um, I maybe went a bit overboard with this description. It's quite long, but we'll see. <laughs> um, I, I kind of wanted to get it all in. <laughs> I mean, I could try okay. to I could try to soundtrack it with with my accordion. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have an accordion? <laughs> well, oh. I, I was just thinking about you know I, I, you know I was reading about like what makes podcasts successful, right? <laughs> okay. it's like, oh, you know, they need musical, you know, mu some musical interludes. Um, I mean, it obviously is a problem that I can't play accordion, but. Um, okay, well, I do you want I to, have, like, at one. some point during this description, just once I've got on for quite a while, just do a little accordion interlude? Uh, yeah, I'll do a trill. An accordion okay, trill. Cool. Yeah. All right, good. So, Casper um, is the title character in a much more usual sense than in Mercedes Ice. Uh, he's a ten-year-old boy who has never been allowed to leave the perimeters of his house and garden, and who cooks and cleans for his mother, Pumpkin, who spends her days trying to look as sparkling as possible. 
and um, dreams at nights of the days before the neighbourhood was demolished and their house was a functioning beauty salon. Um, one day, a boy called Heartthrob appears in Casper's garden trying to steal his roses. Casper um, invites him in and he tells Casper about the world outside and how the city's divided into the glitter and the gloom. Um, the glitter being where the found who live who have homes and the gloom where the lost live who are homeless. Um, the next morning, Pumpkin's favourite rose-shaped golden brooch is missing and Casper is convinced that Heartthrob must have stolen it. He heads out in the night, leaving the garden for the first time on a quest to find the bridge that Heartthrob lives under and get the brooch back. Cue accordion. <laughs> Um, when he arrives in the city, he gets swept up by the entourage of King Streetwise, who calls himself the King of the Gloom, and lives in a palace that's an abandoned church. He's surrounded by his so-called Argonauts, who cleanse the palace of things he doesn't like, like moths and roses that remind him of his lost love uh, with the prettiest hair in the gloom, a girl called Hushabai Brightwing. Uh, if they do, don't do their jobs well enough, King Streetwise gives them a black eye. Casper finds out that Heartthrob was one of King Streetwise's Argonauts who ran away with Hushabai, and he's entranced by the king, so he tells him where to find them. The entourage heads out, but the bridge they arrive at isn't the right one, and when the lost who lived there refuse to acknowledge Streetwise as their king, he orders the Argonauts to rip apart all the cardboard that they sleep on. Um, Casper realises after that that Streetwise isn't a friend, after all, and runs off, only to find the bridge where Heartthrob and Hushabai are staying. Um, they tell Casper the true... <laughs> yes, yes. Um, they, they tell Casper the true story of Streetwise, including the fact that all the so-called Argonauts are kids that Streetwise has tempted to run away from home. Um, Casper goes home to Pumpkin and upsets her by telling her that she needs to start doing housework and cooking and that he wants to have friends of his own. Um, Heartthrob and Hushabai come to his house, but King Streetwise follows the trail of rose battles and bursts in, kidnapping Pumpkin. The three of them make a plan to get Pumpkin back by filling a, like, a bathtub with moths, papering over the top and covering it with cream to make it resemble an enormous banoffee pie, um, his favourite food. Streetwise falls for it, and in the confusion and fear of all the moths, it starts knocking over all the candles in the palace, setting it alight. Casper and Hushabai res rescue Pumpkin, who's become catatonic from distress, and she's been trapped under a bell in the tower, uh, but the stairs have collapsed and they can't escape. Uh, but just in time, Pumpkin snaps out of her fugue state and directs the Argonauts to hold out the gold cloak so they can jump onto it like a trampoline. They escape, and Pumpkin gives a speech, offering shelter to all the lost at her home. That night, Casper gets a visit from a bedraggled and smoke-blackened King Streetwise, who tries to persuade him that Pumpkin doesn't need him anymore, and that they should run away into the gloom together. But Pumpkin appears and tells him to go away. Casper and Pumpkin are reunited, and they have a new purpose, to save any more kids from being tricked by Streetwise. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, so I hope that's um, clear enough. Uh, there's a fair amount of plot 
in Casper and the Glitter. Yeah, it's like a, <laughs> um, a mini Dickensian street odyssey. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I what did you make of it? Well, Were you uh, reading it for the first time? Yeah, yeah um, and for the first half I wasn't that keen and then it suddenly clicked with me and I loved it. Okay. Um, I don't know why. At first, I... There's always something just a little bit queasy about Ridley. To me, mm. kind of. I don't know. That's not quite... Like, like, like... I guess it's the way that, you know, characters have this tendency to repeat the same phrases. Like... Mm -hmm. Everyone seems like just slightly automated, almost. Like you can imagine oh, yeah. all the characters are little clockwork people, or something. Like, mm. um, and at, at first, I don't know. I, I just wasn't clicking with it. And then, around midway, um, it just suddenly all fell into place for me. For me, and after that, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, mm. it's, yeah, a long time since that happened like normally you know either i'm not sure about a book and it stays like that or i love it from the start whereas yeah it was this it took me a while to get into but once i settled into it you know i mean i think it's just he, he is a very peculiar writer and it had been a while and mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. think i needed to sort of adjust back to how ridley writes and yeah once i got back into it i, I thoroughly enjoyed it yeah yeah um yeah he definitely has his, his his own ticks. Um, all of as you said, all the most of the characters have their own um, their own way of addressing people. So the Argonauts, one of them calls everyone chief, one of them calls everyone mate, one of them old calls beans. everyone old bean squire, and then they all sort of say the same thing one after the other we're adding their own catchphrase yeah yeah um <laughs> you say there's so, quite a lot of that in vinegar street as well um yeah um vinegar street it's similar i think yeah the people i think each character has their own sort of um pet name or sort of endearment that they use um uh that's another really good one i love vinegar street but um <laughs> it didn't quite <laughs> it it didn't quite sneak into this one um but um certainly in um zips apollo which is actually entirely dialogue oh. uh, um interestingly it's it's very it's a very interesting book um but uh so this this way of writing is um, particularly accentuated in that where see if you well each character has their own font I think as well but um, but also all their vocal tics might help you distinguish them. Um, but yeah, I I think I I I really liked Casper as a protagonist as well. Perhaps because I can mm. kind of relate to him a fair amount. <laughs> um, I can imagine that Casper would take very seriously an oath to God and the Queen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I, I was quite a Casper-like child, basically. Mm. Um, so Casper's very kind of by the book. And, mm. you know, he's a, a kind-hearted soul, really, but he's also a little bit buttoned up. And so he can mm. let things kind of build up and then... 
um, suddenly get very flustered and upset and indignant about things. <laughs> like, I don't know, uh, he sort of fluctuates between sort of self-abasement uh, and indignance. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Got my number. <laughs> um. And and also, he makes a great banoffee pie. And banoffee pie is indeed... Uh, a dessert of gods so um it, it really is i don't know if i love banoffee pie before reading this book or if i'm just if it's just um if the book was just great propaganda for banoffee if pie. the book was just great banoffee pie propaganda but uh, yeah have you have you tried banoffee pie with a dollop of marmalade on the top then i don't think i have because it did make me want to try it yeah that's the that's casper's um special trick in making banoffee pie which um, I have to admit must be nicer than um, marmalade crumble. <laughs> it did remind me of marmalade crumble. Did it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my my old um, housemate Tai Hung uh, once. Yeah, wanted to. I can't remember what it was. I think I I baked her something, and she wanted to make mm. me something, and she'd gone to the supermarket and bought marmalade. I think just sort of thinking that it was like a fruit filling. Mm. Uh, and so made marmalade crumble uh, and then um, <laughs> uh, I don't say pressured me into eating lots of it um, although kind of <laughs> expectantly watched me as I, I choked down uh, I mean you know I once ate 1200 grams of Cadbury's caramel chocolate in one sitting as I'm sure you remember um, I do. It yeah, was um, pretty moment, upsetting, proud, to be no, honest. A proud, a proud <laughs> no, not an upsetting moment. <laughs> I, do, I do remember, like at the time, I was like, "Oh, oh you're like, Adam, you've just eaten all that's," and I was like, "Oh, oh, oh yes, I have." And you're like, "No, no, seriously, that's that's you've got a problem." <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, yes, I've got a problem. You're like, I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah, I, I did genuinely feel like I might die it was awful <laughs> like, my body felt like it was shutting down like it was like nope you've done it this time it was, it was quite scary <laughs> yep but 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 yeah almost as bad was the marmalade crumble which was the most relentlessly sugary thing I've ever like it burned <laughs> as it went down <laughs> um, but I think mar marmalade on banoffee pie is probably I think that would probably be quite nice yeah quite tangy sounds good mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think Ridley has so, a thing for quirky foodstuffs, right? Like, mm. or, or or just characters really in, liking one foodstuff. In Scribble Boy, there's um, two characters who um, who sort of can diagnose people what pizza and ice cream, respectively, they most want to eat, which <laughs> was an idea I always loved. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, I don't know if there are jelly deals in any of his books, but jelly deals strike me as a very Philip Ridley thing. Mm. You know, these yeah. are the quirky, slightly sort of unusual kind of food stuff you get in Britain. Mm. Slightly grotesque. Yeah, slightly grotesque, but slightly scrumptious. <laughs> well, not not you know. I'm vegetarian. Not that I eat jelly deals, but you know, <laughs> they do it for but, some people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So the thing that this Casper and the Glitter particularly made me think of was, 
um, sort of parents in Ridley books. Okay. Um, so there's lots of imperfect parents and parental figures that are not actually bad people, but like Pumpkin, I mean, quite self-absorbed and miserable and kind of wrapped up in their own problems to the extent that they are oblivious to what their children actually need. Yeah, um, Pumpkin's not cruel, but she is neglectful. <laughs> and I think you do feel for her. You know, you kind of like Pumpkin. There's something you can see why mm. she'd be kind of charming. Um, she's sort of lovable, but at the same time, yeah, she's very much an imperfect mother character. Yeah, she... Um, until she she has a, a sudden... <clears throat> turn around at the end um but where she realizes that she's been selfish and putting too much pressure on casper but um she yeah she is likable but she's also very um i mean and i think that's uh ridley saying is he makes these um these characters likable um i think they're very i think he's just quite um, understanding of these imperfect characters or imperfect parents. Um, yeah, he he doesn't believe in monsters. Yeah. I think, like, quite strongly, and even in his adult plays where people can do some monstrous things, mm. I think he, he's fairly radically compassionate um, and quite mm -hmm. willing to push that, I think, into quite disturbing places, that level of compassion mm -hmm. almost in, in some of the adult plays. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think he's very he's very conscious of what has happened to these people that is making that's driving them to act in this way, and like how you know. Yeah, I, I like that hushabye. Um, in the book, mm. who's who's probably the most outright heroic figure. Mm -hmm. um, I like that she never says that anything's cruel. She always says that it's silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really like that too. Her kind of, just sort of... It's, it, it does seem, like, kind somehow. So she's just sort of that people are maybe they're not bad people they're just foolish and acting in ridiculous ways <laughs> but <laughs> yeah I, I, I think I quite like the way she divides up behaviours into silly and sensible rather than good and bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> um um yeah, and this is one of the things that I I most <laughs> I most like about Philip Rodney's children's books is that the that lots of characters who would be demonised in other by other writers are presented as flawed but not irredeemable. Um, particularly the adults who, um, so you have, like, in Vinegar Street, 
sort of you have a character who's like an alcoholic and you have in Zips Apollo um the mum is like grieving and just sort of incredibly depressed and can't really look after her kids at all. Um you have yeah, lots of characters who are who are suffering in various ways and and that means that they're they're not great parents, but they're not it's not because they're bad people. I, I like that I I think um Rosie Ice becoming housebound in Mercedes Ice is actually pulled off very nicely. That mm. it doesn't quite tip into fat phobia. I think for most writers it would, right? Mm. Um, but you know, yeah, maybe you could say that maybe it forms into commonplace ideas about eating compulsively and such. But I, I think it's rendered quite sympathetically. Like, yeah. Yeah, she's she's certainly never made to seem grotesque at all. Mm. And I, you know, I think this is something that really marks out Philip Ridley as different from Roald Dahl. Right? Uh-huh. I, oh, I, yeah. I quite like Roald Dahl, but Roald Dahl's mean, right? There's uh-huh. Roald Dahl books are ju- yeah. properly judgmental. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Um... <laughs> So in a way, I think it's quite a superficial comparison. Like, I can see why you draw the comparison, in that you have these larger-than-life characters and kind of dark fairy tales and characters with eccentric tics. But I think with Roald Dahl, there's often a sense that we're... I, I, do, I like some of the warmer Roald Dahls. Like, I like Giraffe, Pelly and Me quite a lot, for instance. Mm. Um, but some of them, like the Twits, it's quite a nasty God, yeah. book. It feels kind of sneering. <laughs> Yeah. So do you think Casper the Glitter is scary, though? Because you, um, you obviously wanted to do Ridley, and you said it doesn't <laughs> quite count as horror. No. Um, I think probably... I mean... The scariest part of it is um, is the, the figure of um, Streetwise... He wants to um, tempt children away um, from from their families and their homes to become part of his entourage. Um, well, he's a bit of a sort of artful dodger type character from Oliver Twist, in as much as he is a kid mm-hmm. himself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He is. But um, he uses emotionally abusive tactics, right, to try to mm-hmm. lure kids. And, I mean, I think the book tries to make a distinction between, you know, what's love and what's forcing people to love you. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, I mean, I don't think Casper and the Glitter is really horror, but it's... It has it has that edge. Um, it has that kind of unsettling, um, sort of mirror world thing. Um, like 
sort of similar to Neverwhere, kind of the world above the streets and the world below the streets. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the idea that they're being these homeless kids that, you know, the respectable, the army of the upright, uh, to quote Virginia Woolf, would just walk, <laughs> walk past and not pay any heed mm-hmm. to. Um, mm. I can read the passage that I did find disturbing. Um, and oh, yeah. It might be the same bit you... I, I'd be interested to know if it's also one that leapt out at you. Um, mm. it's, yeah, just a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. They were almost under the bridge now. Casper could see that the homeless were all about his age. Another train thundered by. It made Casper's ears ring. But the sleeping lost did not wake. They must be used to it, thought Casper. Yellow, blue, yellow, blue. Wake up! boomed the king. His voice reverberated under the bridge. The lost opened their eyes and struggled out of their cardboard boxes. The king's golden cloak reflected first the light of the street lamp, then the light of the moon. Yellow, blue, yellow, blue. Well, hey there, listen to me, you sleepy lost, announced the king. I am here to find the love of my life. Hushabye, Brightwing! The Argonauts shuffled forward. Hushabye, squires, with the beautiful hair, old beans. Love of his life, chiefs. Woof, mateys! Casper could see the Argonauts' faces were twitching with excitement, eyes wide, nostrils flared, tongues licking lips. Far be it for me, began Jingo, whispering in Casper's ear, to tell someone with a sequin what to do, but you can put me down now if you want to. Casper did so, then looked at the walls under the bridge. There were several posters, but none of a tropical island. Good heavens, thought Casper, this is not the arch. Do you know where my hushabye is? The king was demanding. The newly awakened lost shook their heads. The king jumped from his chariot and approached them. Casper said, This isn't the right bridge. The king glared at him. His eyes changed colour with the light. Yellow, blue, yellow, blue. There's no poster of a tropical island, explained Casper. So Hushabai isn't here. The Argonauts muttered amongst themselves. Wrong bridge, squires. Wrong bridge, old beans. Wrong bridge, chiefs. Woof, mateys. Then, gracious me, muttered Jingo. The king collapsed to his knees and clutched at his chest. Ouch! he whined. Another night without my hushabye. Another night before I see her pretty hair. Ouch! 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 Then he glared at the lost. Tell me, you sleepy and trembling moonlit dudes. Do you know who I am? The lost were too afraid to speak. Well, hey there! I'm your king! yelled Streetwise. And that means you belong to me! That means I'm your best friend. He pointed at the lost. Say it, he demanded. Soothe the ouch of my chest. Turn my totally yucky night into a little bit of a yum. Say, King Streetwise is my best friend. Stardust and Moonglow snarled. Say it. Still, the lost said nothing. The king got to his feet and raised his fist in the air. His rings gleamed yellow, blue, yellow, blue. His eyes were raging. The Argonauts muttered. They're not going to say it, squires. Nothing, old beans. Not a word, chiefs. Woof, mateys. Then, gracious me, said Jingo. Silence. The dogs snarled louder. The king raised his fist in the air. Tear their cardboard, he screeched. Tear it all. And suddenly the tunnel was a cauldron of noise and panic. 
The Argonauts rushed forward and started ripping the cardboard boxes the Lost had been sleeping in. The Lost screamed. The dogs howled. The Argonauts laughed. The street lamp flickered. Blue, yellow, blue, yellow. Yeah, that bit freaked me a bit. Mm. It's, it's disturbing, yeah. There's something, I don't know, that, like, everything feels quite feverish and bestial. Yeah. And slightly out of yeah. control. Yeah, yeah. And I want to talk about the illustrations bit, because the illustration by, is it Chris Riddle? Yeah. Um, is presumably one of the lost who looks like... Have you got this illustration? Yeah, no, I have. Yeah, no. it's definitely... On, it's it's hor- very... It's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible, <laughs> this picture. It's... Um, um, oh, just flicking through ambient, flicking through book sounds. Um, on mine, it's um, 117. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so it's this kind of... Sort of squat, dirty sort of figure wearing layers and layers of clothes and this three pronged bubble hat. Um, sort of seen from above, and like with our eyes and mouth wide open, um, in a scream, and um, sort of below this cracked street lamp, um. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's a really disturbing picture. <laughs> I I find so you really like Chris Riddle's illustrations. I take it. I do. Yeah. yeah. So what 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 do you like about Riddle's illustrations? Um, I love the all the cross hatching and um, the use of black and white. Um, I think. Uh, he's really good at light and dark and sort of the very um, defined textures of them. Yeah, that's true. They all look quite tactile somehow. Mm. I find them a little bit squirmy. I don't know. They give me weird feelings in my tummy. <laughs> uh, they're all very knobbly. Like All the characters are very knobbly elbows and knobbly knees. Like... Yeah, um, I think it. Yeah, it's part of his quite defined sort of cross-hatching style. They are. They do appear very. Lot there's lots of um, knuckles and knees and noses that are quite <laughs> prominent. Yeah, everything. Little sort of things poking out. Mm. And clothes that don't quite fit. Like either mm-hmm. really sagging cloves or really tightly pinched in cloves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it definitely suits Ridley's world. Mm, like, yeah. like, like they they're, they're a definite match, but um, yeah, they make me feel a little bit icky. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, just ju- ju- just literally like they, I find them. Looking at them makes me feel weird. Okay, yeah. Um, I can cope, however. Has he also done some books with, like, animals? Mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I think I've seen his illustrations of, like, mice or something. Mm. Like, little mouse mm. people. And that didn't bother me in the slightest. So it's mm. definitely something about how he does people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, 
I mean, they do sort of seem quite like a collection of body parts and <laughs> cloves, in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you're a collection of body parts and cloves, but I can, I can, <laughs> I, I can, I can see why you'd like that. Yeah. You know, you do like your puppet movements sometimes. Like when you used to do all mm-hmm. your shoveling with the imaginary big spoon. <laughs> what? Do you not remember that? You used to kind of do it to freak me out. <laughs> well, I don't remember this. <laughs> I don't know if it was like a charming thing or you kind of, I think, did it like, because it was, like, I don't know, you'd, you'd go like, um, something something like like oh spoon it all up and then you do like this sort of puppet spooning motion like really maniacally <laughs> <laughs> like you had like, like like you had a big spoon <laughs> wow you did i swear you did this <laughs> no i mean it sounds like something i do i just yeah, i just don't yes. remember <laughs> <laughs> oh, i have singed in my memory <laughs> Well, speaking of which, kind of, shall we do our textures of the week? Oh, yeah, I better get my accordion. Yeah. Texture of the week! Texture of the week! Um, do you want to go first? Uh, well, I mean, I guess... <laughs> I mean, it's sort of what we were talking... You know, I guess sort of Ridley's um, and Riddle's textures together. Um mm-hmm. But I suppose the marmalade on the Bonoffi, mm. like, just because I spent so much time trying to picture it and whether I wanted to eat it or not, <laughs> I still can't quite decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to try it. I'll, I'll have to report back maybe next time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, do, do let us know. Um, I was going to go with um, Hickory Sparkle's uh, Cape of Cobwebs. Oh yeah, um, that was great. Mm. Just literally, uh, she finds a, sh- a sheet of cobwebs and puts it around herself as a cape. And then and M- Mercedes Ice. Mercedes Ice has his his corresponding cape. Um, he makes his devoted mother sew for him by um, just to to fish for rats, by like, casting a line down the side of the building, reel them in, kill them, and skin them, and stitch them into a cape of rat skins for her beloved Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> see, you see, yeah. it's, it's funny, mate. Yeah. Like, I'm sort of all right with that. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think that's probably... That's all my notes, anyway. Yeah, I don't think I have much more to say, just that, you know, Ridley does offer you some curious worlds to get lost in, so I would recommend mm. them. Like, mm. there's no one quite like him. Yeah. He's, he's a... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a curious but very engaging writer. I do like him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'll, I'll, um, I'll add the ones that I've talked about in this to the show notes, so... Can my little recommended list of yeah read these children's books uh, you can you can find them you know don't i mean don't order things from amazon but i think amazon independent retailers is maybe ethically okay maybe 
Mm, I, I can maybe. never decide. I can never decide. I sort of feel like, you know... Like, it is kind of, unfortunately, one of the only places to get them, really. Yeah. Unless well, you, you can certainly... want to scour lots of second-hand shops. Yeah, and they do crop up. You know, I, I, they do, some of, yeah. Some of mine are from the second-hand bookshops, mm. so do look out for them. Tend to have quite glittery covers. So. Oh, yeah, my, my cover of Casper and the Glitter um, has, has a kind of glittery... Mm. But it's really one thing I really like about it, right, is they've obviously got this, um, I don't know, glitter page, right? Like, mm. shiny, you know, um, hologram stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, cut out, then, then over the top of it, you know, um, it, it is the the blue cover. And then, it, you know, it, I guess it, they've cut out the shapes for Casper and the Glitter. So you can see. Mm. Yeah. But, but then that means that if the cover gets scratched, so because mine's second hand, on the mm. back, it's got lots of nicks and scratches. And then you can see the glitter. Like the, the, oh, the, the nicks. That's cool. Yeah, the nicks and scratches glitter, which seems so Ridley. Yeah, yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, do you have a sign off oh, um, Bean? yeah well let, let, let's just keep it at that then um, <laughs> keep, keep, keep it spooky old beans keep it spooky chiefs <laughs> <laughs> yeah see you next time should we do the credits yeah uh, our intro music's by Maki Yamazaki. Our outro music's by Joe Kelly. Our artwork's by Letty Wilson. Uh, give all their details in the show notes. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at StillScaredPod or email us at stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>